Good afternoon, Covenant Hope Church. Welcome to this gathering. We continue our series in the minor prophet Micah. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Micah chapter 3. And we'll be considering chapters 3, 4, and 5 today. So have that open in front of you. It will be helpful to you because we're studying three chapters today. I'm going to be flying and uh, it will be helpful for you to be skimming over those verses. Again, like last week, we're not going to read the whole text, otherwise we'll be here into the late evening, but instead, if you guys will just be skimming over those verses that I'll be drawing your attention to, that will be helpful to you. So Micah chapter 3, 4, and 5. Cigarette packets have had warnings on the side of them for the last 40 years or so. It began in the early 80s where cigarette packets had a small little warning label typed there, and it said, smoking is a health hazard in tiny little letters. A few years later, the message changed slightly. It said, smoking damages your lungs. That was in the late 80s when I was born. Then in the 90s, the labels got bigger, and it said, smoking causes lung cancer in big block letters. And now in the 2000s, if you buy a packet of cigarettes, don't recommend it, but if you were to go and look at one in a grocery store, the warnings now cover most of the packet. And now there's not just words, there's actually vivid pictures on them. Graphic pictures of lungs that are consumed by tar and look horrible, or even victims who have died with lung diseases caused by smoking. Now, the purpose of these uh, these warning labels getting more and more graphic and more and more shocking is to do just that to shock you, to pay attention, to see what what the danger is of these things that you can purchase and inhale and smoke. Our passage today has one of the most gruesome descriptions or the most vivid pictures of the wickedness of God's people that you find in the whole Bible almost. It focuses particularly on the leaders and how vile they were, And it's meant to shock us, to wake us up, to cause us to pay close attention to the warning that the author has. These were men that were supposed to lead. They were supposed to embody and epitomize righteousness. They were supposed to be living examples of God's law, but instead they were examples of evil. And so God raised up Micah, a small town prophet, to call His people and their leaders in particular back to keeping the covenant that God had made with them, back to keeping the law of Moses that was given on Mount Sinai. As we discussed last week, there are a series of prophecies. There's three in Micah. That's why we have three sermons. Today, we'll be looking at the second of the three prophecies of judgment and salvation. Each of the prophecies has an element of judgment and an element of salvation. 
And this second oracle, it continues the message from chapters 1 and 2 that we found there. It, it intensifies the message of judgment that we saw in chapters 1 and 2, but it also amplifies the promise of a saving shepherd king who would deliver his people that we saw in just those last two verses last week, if you remember. Micah is turning up the volume on both judgment and salvation. We're going to consider his second prophecy today. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord and ask for Him to guide us as we study His Word. Speak to us today, O Lord, as we come to You now to receive the food of Your holy Word. Take Your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us more and more into Your likeness. For the glory of Your name we pray. Amen. So, the second prophecy, it, it underlines, it highlights the role of the leaders in the situation that the people of Judah faced, Judah being the southern kingdom after the kingdom had split. And it highlights for us both their role to play in the judgment of the people, the leader's role in the judgment of the people, but also a leader's role in its salvation. And what we hear most clearly in these three chapters that we'll consider is that leaders who consume will be judged, but God is sending a conquering king who will save. Leaders who consume will be judged, but God is sending a conquering king who will save. That's the main point of chapters 3, 4, and 5. We'll consider it in two points. First, leaders denounced in chapter 3, and then a Savior pronounced in chapter 4 and 5. Leaders denounced in chapter 3, and a Savior pronounced in chapters 4 and 5. So, let's consider chapter 3. Last week, we talked about getting a clear view of sin, seeing how vile sin can be and how wicked it is. And perhaps if you failed to see that last week, Micah's second prophecy will wake us all up to just how wretched sin really is. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. I'll read these for us. And I said... Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones into pieces and chop them up like meat, in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Right out of the gate, we get some horrible verses that almost turn my stomach just to read them aloud. They'll put you off your dinner after service today. But let these words settle over you. Look over them once again, verses 1 to 3. 
These may be some of the most grisly verses in the whole Bible, and there are a lot of disturbing events that happen in the Bible. But they're here for a purpose. They're meant for us to learn something from them. Micah calls the heads of, the, the, of Judah and the rulers of the people to hear what he has to say, and his indictment against them is damning. First, he asks them a question. Is it not for you to know justice, he asks? The rulers, beginning with the king himself, were to execute judgments for the people, were to ensure justice was upheld in the country. And Deuteronomy chapter 17, part of Moses' law, lays out rules for the king. Whoever was to become king was to write a copy of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They were to write it out. It was to be approved by the priests to make sure he hadn't skipped anything or got anything wrong. Writing out the first five books of the Bible will take you some time. And then the king was to read it regularly, daily, to himself, and he was called not just to read it and to know it, but he was called to keep it all the days of his life and to lead the people in keeping God's law as well. That was the role of the king. Those that the king appointed as rulers under him, as leaders and heads, they were to also enforce the law, to help people to keep God's word. These leaders were to know what God required of them, They were to know what justice was. They were to live it out and to enforce it in the land. But here they're described as those who hate what is good and love what is evil. Rather than upholding justice, they're described graphically as devouring the people that are under their leadership, as flaying their skin, chopping them into pieces, taking the meat off the bone, breaking the bones, throwing it into a pot, and cooking it to consume it. This is cannibalism being described here. How graphic, how horrifying a a picture that is of leaders of a nation. Where the people should have found help, they found only greater oppression. When they ran to the judges to help enforce justice, they found even greater oppression. They were abused and taken advantage of. Such a grotesque picture. It's meant to wake us up. It's to to shock us to the grim reality of sin. And especially when sin that's carried out by leaders, those who are supposed to be caring for so many people. And so, in fact, there is an application here today, even as I appreciate Pastor Nissen praying for the elders of this church, there's an application here for us today, the elders that are here, Shannel and Nissen and Frank, And for Brian and Michael as well, that we're to lead in such a way that doesn't hurt our people, but cherishes them, cares for them, nourishes them. And so pray for us. Continue to pray prayers like what Nissen just prayed for the elders of this church. Such a grotesque picture reminds us that those who, who lead should be those that protect their people, not view them as commodities, not view them as something to be used and consumed. This consumer mindset happens all around the world today in all kinds of places where national leaders take advantage of their people and just want to abuse and use them for their own means. 
where people are treated more like products to be consumed rather than souls to be cherished. But it's not just national leaders that do this. Industries, whole industries use people and consume them. One glaring example of this is the multi-billion dollar pornography industry where the product is the people that are being consumed, even if it's just through a TV screen. And the pornography industry actually fuels human trafficking, where people are taken captive and controlled. And in both people, especially women, their lives are being torn apart and consumed. If you struggle in this area, and statistics say that some of us here in the room do struggle with pornography, then let me encourage you to please seek help. Please talk to someone in leadership in the church. Seek the help that you need to fight this sin rather than supporting an industry that's consuming people's lives. Another example of a consumer mindset that sees people as pawns to be moved and used it is, is very common around the world, the abusive treat, treatment of laborers and, and workmen, people at the, the bottom of the social ladder. They're forced to work crazy hours in unsafe conditions and far beyond what is sustainable. And maybe that's true not even just at the bottom of the ladder, but even people working their way up, companies controlling them and using them just to get squeeze as much as they can out of them, lives being consumed by being overworked, underpaid, and demanding bosses. But sadly, it's not just out there in the world that we see this kind of thing happening. What we see here described in chapter 3, it was happening among God's people in the nation of Judah. And it even happens today in the church. The biggest denomination in the USA, the Southern Baptist, recently published a report that outlined hundreds of of ministers, hundreds, and other church leaders who were being credibly accused of sexual abuse within their churches and or covering up such abuse of people, people being torn apart, their lives being abused. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, keep us from these things. This kind of consumeristic mindset can take more subtle forms as well in the church especially. It looks like assessing a church based on what that church has to offer to you rather than how you might serve that church. A self-serving view of Christ's body rather than a self-sacrificial, self-denying approach to the church. But this kind of mindset, a consumeristic mindset, it doesn't reflect the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, who though He was in the form of God, gave up His rights, gave up His privileges, came to take the form of a servant, humbling Himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we need to fight this kind of mindset of consuming others and thinking, what can I get out of them? What can they offer to me? and to think more about their needs. We need to adopt this mindset that counts others more significant than ourselves, Paul says in Philippians 2. But look at verse 4. We see this great reversal. 
There will come a time when those wicked rulers that we considered, they are the ones who need help. And they go to the Lord to help them. They cry out to the Lord, but He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them. Why? Because they have made their deeds evil. I wonder if you've ever considered that before, that how you treat other people will affect your prayer life. It's not just that we see it here in Micah. We actually find this in the New Testament as well, in Peter's encouragements to husbands. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, the one who is under your care, so that your prayers may not be hindered, he says in 1 Peter 3. When we mistreat others, especially the more vulnerable among us, our prayers will be hindered. When we walk in ongoing, unrepentant sin towards others, it affects our relationship with the Lord and whether our prayers will be heard by Him and answered or not. If there is unresolved sin in your life, if there is unchecked uh, being uncaring towards other people, then you have to face it. You need to confess it. You need to turn from it. You need to repent of it. Don't ignore your sin. Flee it and confess it to the Lord. The reason God paints this gruesome picture for us is to shock us into action, to prick our consciences. Maybe our hearts have grown hard. This is to soften them so that we stop ignoring sin in our lives. But it's not just the judicial leadership that are at fault. God exposes the sins of the religious leaders too. Look with me at verses 5 to 12 of chapter 3, the rest of chapter 3. The prophets who were meant to lead the people to keep the covenant are leading the people astray. If you recall last week, I said that that the prophets, their role, their, what they were doing, their main message was to be covenant cops or covenant enforcers, to call people back to live according to the covenant. But these ones were not proclaiming God's covenant and calling people back to it. They were leading people astray. And what we see here in verses 5 through 12, what we see is what, is what their ministry was like is what we often call today the prosperity gospel. Now, it's a, a prosperity gospel, and notice it's, it's at least prosperity in two ways. Firstly, their motives are for their own prosperity. These teachers, these prophets, these preachers, they cry peace to those who give them something to eat, and they declare war against those who don't give them anything. Their motive is not to serve the people by delivering God's Word, but to fill their own stomachs. These prophets are in it for the prophet. And look down at verse 11. Here it gives all the leaders, the heads, the priests, and the prophets, they're all said to be doing what they're doing for money. All these leaders, they're corrupt. The judges take bribes. The priests get a paycheck, and that's all they're concerned about. And the prophets fill their pockets. The same thing happens all around the world today. Some of the richest people in the world 
are megachurch pastors who in the name of the Lord are simply serving themselves. They're growing their own kingdoms and their own empires. They're filling their pockets by taking advantage of the most desperate people and the destitute. But it's not just their motive for their own prosperity. Their message is focused on prosperity too. Did you notice that? When they have something to eat, they cry, peace, peace, all is peace. And look down in verse 11, what do these, what do these prophets say? They say, is, is not the Lord in the midst of us? Isn't God with us? God's on our side. He's with us. No disaster shall come upon us. These prophets and prosperity gospel preachers always promise God's favor in your life. If you follow them, if you listen to them, they will, you will be blessed by God. You won't suffer. You won't face sickness. Your business will flourish. You'll pass your exams. You'll have health, wealth, and happiness. But God doesn't promise these things to us in this life. In fact, Jesus promised us that we'll, fo if, that we'll follow His footsteps. And He walked through suffering into glory. So much of the New Testament is written simply to help God's people endure through suffering until they reach the end. To not be surprised by the fiery trials that come upon them and that they face. To keep fighting the good fight of faith because it's hard, it's warfare, it's difficult. God doesn't promise us an easy life free from suffering. And we can all be tempted to slip into a form of the prosperity gospel. Maybe the majority of us here, we don't think of God like a divine ATM who just gives us cash and cars and castles. Maybe we don't fall into that form, but more subtly, we can think about uh, whenever things seem to go wrong in our lives and things are not peaceful, we can think that God's abandoned us or that God's mad with us or that something's gone wrong because if I'm following God, it should go right. I shouldn't face depression or grief, or sadness, or sorrows, but that's just not the message of the Bible, brothers and sisters and friends. Unlike all these other worthless leaders, Micah stands right there in the middle. Look at verse 8. He stands there as a faithful servant, empowered by God's Spirit with His message, fighting for justice, and pointing out people's sins. It's amazing that he describes his whole, his whole message as declaring sin and transgression to the people. As we conclude this section of judgment, it's worthwhile recognizing that this is a message of mercy from God. When Micah cries out their sin, that's actually God's grace to the people. It's His loving kindness to warn them. Even in the most graphic and horrible terms, that's God's goodness to them. God hasn't given up on His wicked people. He warns them, don't ignore your sins. And so we must learn not to ignore God's words that condemn us, that condemn our sin. Don't skip over the more disturbing parts of Scripture when they highlight your sin. They're meant to wake you up to see your sin the way God sees it, and to lead us to repentance and through repentance to salvation. 
The leaders of Judah were denounced for their worthless leadership, but God promises a good leader. He promises a conquering king who will save his people, and that's the second point we see in chapter 4 and 5, a Savior pronounced. The first prophecy, if you recall from chapter 1, it opened with a stunning vision of the Lord Himself stepping out of heaven with an indictment against His people and stepping onto the heights of the mountains, and the mountains just melted before Him. They melted like candle wax before Him. But here, at the beginning of this oracle of salvation, look what it says will happen. We see the total reverse in in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Here, God promises that in the latter days, time beyond Micah's time, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains, and all the peoples of the earth will flow like a raging river to this mountain to praise the Lord and worship Him. God's judgment melted the mountains, but His salvation draws all nations to His mountain. And what do they say as they come to this mountain? Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. Remember, mountains were understood to be where man met with God. And these high places that we had heard about were where worship took place. But a day is coming, declares the Lord, when all peoples, all nations will gather, not just Israel, they will gather and come to His mountain to worship Him and Him alone. These latter days have begun already, friends. Just look around this room. Brothers and sisters, we are people from many nations who have gathered together today and each Sunday to worship the Lord of heaven and earth, the God of Israel. The vision here is one of a totally transformed Zion. Rather than the wickedness and oppression that was present during Micah's day, God was saying a day was coming when God's Word would sound forth and the peoples would come and be taught and walk in His ways. Look at verses 3 to 5. There we see that justice will reign in this new mountain kingdom. This vision is, is the complete opposite. It's a a photo negative of the picture that we've seen of the nation during Micah's day, where the people and the leadership were marked by oppression and evil. Unlike those leaders who hated good and loved evil, God will establish justice in this kingdom. And rather than devouring each other, robbing each other, abusing each other, the people will now be at peace. This is not like the peace that those prophets spoke about when there really was no peace. Because now, in Zion, swords and spears will be bent and used as plowshares and pruning hooks. Instead of weaponry, they will now be used for farming. And the nations that come into Zion will no longer be at war or enmity with one another, but now they will be at peace, and there will be no need to be afraid ever again. And what will bring all of this about? Verse 5 tells us they will 
walk in the name of the Lord their God forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, try to imagine that for a moment. Imagine living in a world where perfect justice reigned. There was no bribery, no theft, no need for armies or nuclear weapons or self-defense. You don't even need them to be on standby. There was no risk of being taken advantage of. There was no false religious leaders spouting lies to people that are desperate. There was no fear anymore. Imagine never being afraid again. It's hard. It's hard to imagine that. So much of our lives is touched by evil that it becomes so normal to us. We have, we have passwords on our computers and on our iPhones so that people can't steal them. We have security in the malls so that people don't steal from the, from the shops or people don't get into fights. We have cops walking on street corners and driving around in their cars. We have armies trained and weapons ready and nukes on standby so that if a nation steps out of line, we can control it. We can retaliate. We can protect ourselves. And we read of wars going on all the time, violence every day committed in every nation, in every part of the world, on every continent. And we lock our front doors at night so that people don't come in and hurt us and steal. But in God's kingdom, none of those things will be necessary. We won't need any of these security things anymore. And none of these evil things will take place in God's kingdom. What astonishingly gracious words for God to speak to a nation that was so vile and wicked that they're compared to cannibals. God's grace is going to overwhelm their wickedness and transform them into a people of perfect peace. And how, how will God bring about this change? How will this incredible transformation take place? In these verses, we see that God's kingdom advances when God's word goes forth and God's people walk in His ways. There in verse 2 and again in verse 5, the word will go forth and people will walk in it. These are the two key ingredients for personal growth in holiness, in godliness. And it's exactly what wasn't happening in the nation of Judah during Micah's day. The prophets were preaching what they wanted to preach to fill their own bellies, and the people were walking in whatever way they chose, but not God's way. If you want to grow as a believer, if you want to grow as a Christian, you need to be a person of the Word. You need to saturate your life in living, active Word of God. You need to listen to God's words of correction and His words of comfort. You need to meditate on His Word and His ways and consider your ways and ask yourself where they don't meet and then turn and walk in the Lord's ways. It's not just enough to know the Bible. We must also walk in it. And notice this is not a solo project. It's a community project. Look at verse 2 again. 
What do the people say? They say, come, let us go, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. We grow together, brothers and sisters, as we minister God's word to one another, as we spur one another on to walk in it. And this vision of justice reigning over the people of God, it's what we as a church should strive for. It's what we should aspire to be. It's what we should seek to grow in day in and day out. That we would be a place, that we would be a people among whom the the most vulnerable feel safe and secure. Where we truly serve and care for one another, even above our own needs. And where we speak the truth in love and we walk uprightly. And so we should, we should consider as, our, as ourselves, as a church, corporately, how we might grow in doing this more and more, being people of the Word who walk in God's ways. But the mountain, it won't be transformed overnight. Look at chapter 4, verse 6 through 5, 1, and we see a snap back to reality. Having seen a vision of the future with the mountain lifted up, now Micah comes back to reality the present crisis that His people faced. God will gather His people together, but only after they first face the consequences of their sins, and they've gone into exile. Look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord transforms the lame survivors of the exile into the beginnings of His new kingdom on earth. The lame will walk, the afflicted will assemble, And the Lord will reign over them from Zion forever and ever. But for now, their situation is dire. Look at verse 9. Their king and counselors are useless. They might as well not exist. And their situation is likened to a woman in labor, giving birth. Another graphic image. I daren't say imagine this for a moment. You know, some people think that giving birth is a, is a beautiful thing. But I was present for a birth. The birth of Charlotte, my daughter. And let me tell you, I wouldn't call it beautiful. And I thought to myself, I'm so glad that I was born a man. <laughs> Having a child is beautiful. It's an incredible joy. It's a gift. But giving birth is not beautiful. Look at the language that Micah uses to describe this. He says, pain has seized you. That's what laboring is like, giving birth. Pain seizing you. Writhe and groan, he says. Like a baby's arrival, salvation is coming, but first they'll have to face exile. And verse 10 says that they'll be conquered by Babylon. But from there, the Lord will rescue and redeem them. The labor pains won't last forever. The nations think that they're in control as they conquer Zion, but listen to what the Lord's response is to them in verses 12 and 13. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan, that He has gathered them, the nations, Babylon, Persia, as sheaves to the threshing floor. God reveals His plans and His purposes to His people with a picture of the nations being gathered together. They're gathered like wheat to be threshed. 
When grain is harvested, it's threshed or beaten and broken into pieces so that you can remove the edible part from the useless chaff. But here, God's people are likened to the ox or or the the animal that has iron uh, horn and hooves of bronze that will trample their enemies. And that the, the goodness, the wealth of the nations will be devoted to the Lord. The tables will turn. The conquered will become conquerors. But first, Zion will fall and its leader will be shamed. And it's just amazing here how how precise God's plans are as He reveals them to His people. And that they even include His people's suffering. God reveals His plans and it seems like they'll be defeated and they will suffer. But God's in control. God's sovereign over it all. Charles Spurgeon said that when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God, that means His control over all things and His plans and purposes happening according to His plan, is the pillow on which you can lay your head and find perfect peace. That's why God reveals His plans to His people. We must remember, brothers and sisters, that God is always in control. He doesn't lose control in our darkest day. He's always working out His perfect plans. His plans, they may involve, and they often involve pain and suffering, but in the end, they will work out for our good and for His glory. Now, many of you are facing difficult circumstances today, this week. Maybe even more difficult circumstances are on the horizon for you. Be comforted. God is in control of them. Who is like the Lord? That's what Micah means. Who is like Him? He controls all things. He's never caught unaware. His plans can never fail. Even when His people fail, He will not fail. Even when they're faithless, He remains faithful. He will keep His promises. He will rescue. He will redeem. We may face suffering now for a little while, but in the end, we'll receive the unfading crown of glory. The outcome is secure. He will hold us fast. God's sovereignty is like a life raft to cling to when we face the storms of suffering. Allow it to comfort you. Micah's message was that salvation would come, but first they would be exiled in Babylon. Zion would fall, but God has further surprises in store for His people, and that we see in chapter 5, verse 2 to 15. This is the the remainder of our text. There's a few surprises that the Lord has up His sleeve. Look at verses 2 to 5 of chapter 5. First, God's kingdom will be established as a promised king is born in a surprising place. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Maybe you wondered, why did we sing a Christmas song earlier in our service? This is why. The promise is here in Micah. His, his coming forth was from of old, from ancient days. The, the labor pains will end and a child will be born and He will bring His people together. He will gather them and He will be their peace. Look at verses 4 and 5. He shall stand and He will shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord His God. This is wonderful promises about a future king. They'll dwell secure, and he will be esteemed over the whole earth, and he will be their peace. 
the language here is so clearly pointing forward to the Lord Jesus, but we must first think about what it meant for the people during Micah's day. For them, as well as pointing forward, it actually pointed backward, backwards to another shepherd king, to King David, the shepherd boy who became the king after God's own heart and of whom God promised him. God made a covenant with him that his son would be the anointed king and rule on the throne of Israel forever. That king is coming, God is saying through Micah. He's on his way. He'll be born in a surprising way in an insignificant town of Bethlehem. God's reminding his people that he keeps his promises. Don't forget that one. It's coming soon. Their rulers were utter failures, but God would send forth a true ruler, a king who would be shepherd of his people, one who would reign in power and strength, one that would cause them to dwell securely, that would rule over the whole world and bring them perfect peace. And God's king was born. 700 years after these words were written, Jesus Christ, our shepherd king, was born. He came to rescue and to redeem His people, to bring peace to man, to fulfill God's plan, which was from of old, before the foundations of the world were even laid. King Jesus came to usher in God's perfect, just kingdom, and to draw all peoples to Himself, like raging rivers streaming up a mountain, to bring peace with God, because we all, like sheep, had gone astray. We've each rebelled against this Holy One. We've turned aside, and yet He came to gather us and to redeem us by laying down His life for us. The good shepherd laid down His life for His sheep. Why did He lay down His life for His sheep? So that justice could reign. Because at the cross, God put the judgment of sin that you and I so justly deserve upon Him. He died in the place of wicked sinners as the righteous one, but as their sacrifice, as their substitute. Jesus took the judgment for sin at the cross where He died so that He might save us. And He rose on the third day that He might reign forevermore. His sacrificial death for us and His triumphant resurrection secure for us everlasting peace with God. Look at verse 5 again. We see the gospel there summarized in five words. He shall be their peace. Not he shall give them peace. He is their peace. Jesus Christ is our peace. He is what gives us and is our peace with God. Friends, do you want peace in your life, in your soul? Peace with God despite your sin that so justly stands accused? Jesus is that perfect peace. He is peace when everything else feels like chaos. Peace that will never be taken away. Peace that will last on into eternity and beyond. And He offers you Himself. He offers you perfect peace. And all you have to do is trust in Him. Turn from your sins and follow Him. You can do that today. The second surprise that God uh, gives is that He doesn't only promise future salvation for His people, but even a brief reprieve in their current circumstances. Look at the end of verse 5 and verse 6. 
though their imminent threat was from the Assyrian kingdom, who already had conquered Israel in the north, God promised to deliver Judah from them. The Assyrians would march all the way up to the walls of Jerusalem, and they would mock the Lord in front of the king and his people, but God delivered them. It's an incredible story of God's faithfulness. You can find it in 2 Kings 18 and 19. But verses 7 through 9 remind them that they will face exile. They may not go into exile in Assyria, but they will face exile in Babylon. But the surprise here is that he paints now two strangely contrasting images of what that remnant in exile will be like. Look at verses 7 through 9. First, he says that they'll be like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. The exiles, the remnant in exile, the people who get captured and conquered, they'll be a refreshing, uh, a refreshing shower to the people among whom they live. They'll be a blessing even to their own captures. And, when it's, and then it says, they will be like a lion among sheep, devouring with none to deliver. They will be conquerors not the conquered. What a, strange, what a strange juxtaposition of these two pictures. One is a, a picture of refreshment and blessing, and the other one is of cursing. Simultaneously, God's people would be a blessing and a curse to their conquerors. But this shouldn't surprise us. As God had promised that He will be with His people, He promised Abraham that He would bless those who bless them and curse the ones who curse them. And so, God's people would be a blessing when their captors treated them well and recognized the Lord's power in them. But when they stood against them, they would be the ones that were conquered. We saw that even in, in Daniel last year. We, the church, are described in these terms too. We're told that we're exiles in a world that's not our own that we're dispersed among the nations, and that we wear the aroma of Christ. And to some, that aroma is of life to life, and to others, it's of death to death. Blessings and cursing. We are called to be a blessing to those around us as we walk in righteousness, as we submit to the rulers and authorities, and as we spread the good news of the salvation that comes in our shepherd king. And so, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, try to smell like Christ. Be the aroma of Christ. To some, it will be death. To others, it will be life. To some, it will be a blessing. And to others, it will be death. But remember that you are also more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a promise. Nothing can separate us from God's love, and so we're conquerors no matter what happens to us, even if we're killed for Christ's sake. And there's one final surprise. We see it there in verses 10 through 15. Here at the close of our section on God's salvation, God speaks as a conqueror Himself now. The Lord will save by cutting off, by destroying, and by throwing down all their idols, all the things that they're tempted to trust in, like their military might or their false gods. God says He'll destroy them. 
God's salvation involves destroying our idols, brothers and sisters. It's like weeds growing in a garden. God is going to uproot them and cast them off far away. God saves by destroying our idols, and it will be painful. It's like getting a root canal on an infected tooth where they drill down to pull out the infection that is inside. That's what God removing our idols is like. He draws out from the depths of our hearts the things that we're tempted to trust in, to worship, to find our security and our identity in, so that He might reign on the thrones of our heart and Him alone. And so we've seen God pronounce judgment on wicked leaders and promise a surprising salvation through His shepherd king, the king who who doesn't consume His followers, but laid down His life for them who doesn't consume them, but offers Himself as their sustenance, who says that His body is our bread and that His blood gives us life. What a joy it is to follow this shepherd king. And what a hope we have to dwell with Him in a kingdom of perfect justice and peace forevermore. Oh, may we hold fast and follow Him and walk in His ways until He comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would sober us in the light of Your judgment, and that You would uproot the idols of our hearts so that Jesus may be Lord of all of us. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.